0: Praise God, can you please turn to the book of Romans, the book of Romans chapter chapter one. We're going to look at different, a few different passages in the book of Romans today, and we had a bunch of flyers that went out, a bunch of, I say, those 20-page booklets, you know, uh, and then next week we'll have uh, hit other zip code in Simi Valley with a bunch of those booklets again that'll come out and then we'll we'll have hit just about all 45 we're supposed to hit every house out of the about 45,000 houses in Simi Valley which is just awesome you know And uh, so I just uh, just pray about that I got a really beautiful message from a pastor in Simi Valley he was really impacted by uh, the book and he didn't know we were putting it out and and uh, some of the other pastors had already prayed about it. Several of the other pastors and see me had already prayed about it, that this would go out. And they became aware of it because it was made known by one of the pastors or one of the, I think it was a Gideon Bible thing. Yeah, it was. And the leader of that encouraged all the pastors and they said a prayer for it. So, um, but I've, if you're here visiting or you're listening by live stream, we praise God that God got that in your hands. And basically this message is called, How to Be Set Free from the Penalty of Sin. Pastor Steve, when he was doing his announcements, talked about the burdens that we carry, that human beings carry these huge burdens, you know. Stress is a major killer. I mean, heart disease is the number one killer in our country, and a lot of it's because of stress. And Jesus warned that the hearts of many would fail them in the last days because of the fear of things coming upon the earth, and people are worried about all kinds of things, and a lot of people are dying because of stress. Stress. I gave my condolences to a couple of Lisa's relatives that were at the spreading of the ashes up north. And uh, we were shocked that her, uh, her aunt, you know, died so pr- relatively young. She's sturdy, strong, beautiful woman. And, and, uh, and we were kind of shocked that, you know, because she lost her uncle and her aunt right around the same time she lost her mom and then her dad. And we were talking about how all four of them were there and then they're all four gone just within a couple of years or so. And it was shocking. And, and her cousin, Gil, loved that guy. He's like, yeah, you know what? I say, she seemed like, you know, she was like a paragon of health kind of guy. You look at her. He said, but she was under such stress the last couple years or so. And stress is a killer. And we all have heavy burdens. But guess what? Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. Amen? He wants to take our burdens but the heaviest burden that we have is the burden of sin. Sin is the breaking of God's moral law. God's law is all based on his love. Jesus said, on these two, on this two commandments, you know, hang the whole law. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and soul and all your mind and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. And all the law hangs on that. And then Paul explicates the meaning of what Jesus is saying there in the book of Romans when he talks about uh, the moral law of God, and he talks about how it's summed up in, in loving God. Because if you love God, right, and you love your neighbor, you're not going to commit adultery and take your neighbor's wife, amen? You're not going to rob your neighbor. You're not going to murder your neighbor, amen? But the human race is guilty of breaking God's moral law, and we all know it. We all have consciences, Amen? And our consciences speak to the fact that we need to be right with God, that we, we know deep down that, that we're guilty, you know? We have this thing called guilt, and which is evidence. We see the evidence in design and nature of an amazing creator because we can't even make a blade of grass. And we see the evidence that he's a moral being because we have a conscience and we have a sense of just a bad feeling if we hurt someone, amen? And we have a good feeling when we bless someone, when we help someone, amen? That's how the conscience works. Conscience, is conscience means with knowledge, okay? We have knowledge of, of right and wrong to a, a, a very strong degree. We get greater knowledge of right and wrong as we look into God's word, amen? So Father, please help us do this. So we have this burden. The Bible says uh, in Romans, it talks about the problem. Before it gets to the good news, and praise God, we have good news, amen? But before you get to the good news, it shows the bad news, you know? You wouldn't just go in and see a doctor, and he says, okay, hey, lay down. I've got a surgeon coming. And all of a sudden, you see people with the scrubs and them getting ready. To, and you don't even know what's wrong. You're just visiting. You're like, wait, what are you doing, right? But then when you realize you have this uh, cancerous tumor that needs to be taken out or something like that, right, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, you know? Uh, and that's the deal is God lets us know the bad news so he can let us understand the good news. And... I praise God, man, that God has taken care for us of the burden of sin so we don't have to be crushed under it. And that's the biggest burden that humans actually carry. Uh, God told the first human beings, the day that you partake, if you eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die, right? In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, it says the soul that sins will die. That's why we die. The Bible says the wage of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And death is not just, it's not the cessation of existence. The body dies and turns back to the dust. But death is separation. In fact, the scripture talks about the body is dead. when In in James chapter 2, when the spirit leaves the body, then the body's dead because there's a separation. Well, the human race died spiritually because God didn't say you'll just die hundreds of years later to Adam and Eve. He says the day you eat, you'll die how they eat that day because they lived hundreds of years later but physical death set in that day but they were separated from God spiritually and that's a big deal and they were separated from God they covered themselves with fig leaves you know trying to hide their nakedness because now they had a sense of guilt for the first time because they'd broken God's law and they had a sense of shame and they tried to cover up their sinfulness with fig leaves and so forth and uh but sin is really, really serious, and it's a heavy burden. And the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, we've all blown it. And James says in chapter 2 of James, if you offend or break just one of the commandments, you break the whole law. That's pretty heavy. Because he goes on talk about if somebody says, hey, you know, I haven't committed adultery, or, but, I've com- but they've committed murder, they're still guilty of breaking the whole law. Now, some misunderstand that text. They think if you, break, if you sin just in one area, and all of us have sinned in more than one area, that you've broken every single law that God gave. That's not what it's saying there. It's saying if you, it's broke, you've broken the whole law, I mean, the law is, you've just, look at this way. Say there's 10 commandments, and they're holding you up out of hell, and you're perfect. And it's a chain, a chain. Each, each link in the chain represents a commandment, right? You're being held over hell and I don't, I'm good, I don't, I'm not going to hell because I've never sinned. Well, as soon as you break just one of those commandments, you've broken the whole chain. doesn't mean you broke every link. You just broke the whole chain and you're going down. Well, we've all broken the law and we're all guilty uh, before God. And sin is so serious. A lot of people just think they can cuddle up to sin and, and, and you know, it's not that big of a deal or I can reform myself, I can you know, do better, but we have a sinful nature so I try to tell people we're, we're in double trouble, we're under a double curse, we're guilty before God because of our sins, right? And But not only are we guilty, we also talk about this double trouble, this double curse, we're guilty, but we also have a, what's that? Sinful, Sinful nature. So we need to be forgiven, but we also need to be transformed from within, amen? So praise God, there's a double cure, Amen. And that's not found in any self help book. It's not found through psychotherapy. It's not found, can't find anywhere except in Christ. Because He's the only one that died to pay for our sins. God is the only one who can give us the Holy Spirit, right? Who can live in us and help us overcome the power of sin and make us new creations through regeneration or through being born again. Amen? So this is all important. I was reading about a poor lady, man. She calls 9 11 and uh, she could barely, she's having a hard time getting words out, but she's being killed, she says. And then when the authorities got there, you know, law enforcement, and they got in there, she was already dead. And there was blood everywhere in her kitchen, and she had apparently been cooking. And there's blood everywhere, and there's a knife laying next to her. And they look at her, and they examine her body. And there's no puncture wounds, not a cut on her. Just some marks across her chest and her neck. But they follow the blood trail. I'm sure very cautiously. And then they found the perpetrator or the perp or the assailant laying there dying uh, with puncture wounds. And it was a large boa constrictor. So she apparently uh, was calling 911 for help because her pet boa constrictor, which she probably had since it was a little small pet, she was allowing to constrict around her neck and her body while she's cooking. And then it decided to just... You know, constrict her body and killed her. It's a very sad story. You know, uh, I've used an illustration similar to that of a man who, looking for his baby, couldn't find the baby, but then found a lump in his. I think it was a python stomach. And what happens is we treat sin like that. It's a pet. I can control it. And it'll kill you, man. In fact, we're already dead because of sin, and we have to take it seriously. And sometimes a lot of people deal with, with the guilt of sin through you know, drugs and some form of escapism and so forth. But it continues to haunt them. Sin ruins relationships between people, between families, between marriages. It's very, very, absolutely uh, the most devastating thing in the universe. Now, I think it's important for us to understand, you guys, that Romans is such an amazing book. Sometimes people ask me my favorite book in the Bible. And man, I, it depends when you ask me. Right now, it's James, because I'm going to the book of James. And I've been, I'm almost memorized the first chapter. I'm going to try to memorize, by the grace of God, hopefully, the entire book of James. But I've got the first chapter almost done. I've got a couple more verses, uh, because I want to really be meditating on it. So when I teach you the book of James, you know, uh, when you go through it hundreds of times, you know, and you're praying and crying out to God to understand it better, and I, and I often will start out with like 40 or more uh, commentaries as I, I prepare for a book along with all these different helps and the languages and so forth. Uh, but pray, pray for me, please, because I want it to be the best series on James you could ever hear, you know? At least the best that I could ever deliver, and to really bless you in the book of James. But Romans is definitely one of my favorite books. The book of Hebrews, the New Testament I'm talking, is often my favorite book. book of Revelation is often my favorite book. I memorized about the first half, almost the first half of that book. And it was just, it's an amazing book. Romans this is such an incredible book. It's the favorite book of many, many people. And Romans is amazing because it just, like no other book, it shows you God's plan for salvation. Eternal life. Well, what's interesting is the first few chapters, first, you know, two and a half chapters or so, the emphasis is on how is the bad news before he gets to the good news. Amen? And how we're in trouble. Without God. And in Romans 1, verses 18 and following, he talks about the predicament that the lost Gentile world is in and how they, God's revealed himself through the creation, through nature, through the things he's made, and internally he's given a witness within himself. When people look at creation, that they can see creation and understand that he's made it. But humans have a problem even with this overwhelming evidence. They want to suppress the truth. In fact, Romans chapter 1, if you want to pick it up at verse 18, it says... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So God's wrath, which is his holy, righteous anger. Not anger like humans have. The Bible says for us to be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. The Bible says that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Amen? But, God's ha- but you can be angry and sin not because anger is not a bad emotion as long as you're not doing evil in it. If you don't get upset because you see an old lady getting kicked to death for her money, and you don't get angry about that, then there's something wrong with you. okay? But you don't sin in your anger. Well, God has perfectly righteous anger. His wrath is directed against the wicked who break his moral law of love and destroy others and hurt others. And here, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And the Greek word suppress simply means to hold down. And I always, when I look at that verse, I kind of think of like a little boy holding down a jack-in-the-box. He doesn't want it to pop out. Well, God's more than a jack-in-the-box. But people try to hold him down because they don't want to face him. They try to ignore him. He goes to give the witness of creation... Which, by the way, a lot of people flock toward the bankrupt theory of Darwinism because they want to suppress the truth and they don't want to face the reality that we will all stand before God and that we're all accountable to God. Amen? So look at Romans 1. We just looked at 18. Now look at verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Not obscurely, but clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So that they are what? Yeah, they're without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of God, or the incorruptible God, for an image in the form of corruptible men and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over. He didn't predetermine them, but he gave them over to the lust or in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among themselves. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. In the Greek, it's a definite article, ho, or for the lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. uh, For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, which would be lesbianism, and the men. And in the same way, also, men abandoned their natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So Paul talks about how uh, in the antediluvian period, he's he's just basically showing what happened since creation is that man rejected God's self-revelation of who he is. The general revelation of creation and conscience he gets into in chapter 2, the next chapter, even though he hints about it here because it was revealed in them. They suppressed God and they want to do what they will, do their own will, do their own thing. Meaning just not follow God's moral laws and so forth because they suppress the truth. And they end up worshiping creatures and worshiping things that are made as God rather than the one true God. So the, world's his- the, world, the history of the world full of idolatry. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament you want to see what sin is repeated the most that God comes down on, it's idolatry. And the Bible says you'll become like what you worship. But we're creating the image of God. We need to worship God so we could be godly. Amen? But you worship things in your image and then you attribute certain attributes that you, your passions and so forth. So many of the, I don't have time to explicate how many idols were made in the image of men so they could you know basically dishonor their bodies and so forth. But uh, it's, it's interesting because Romans 1 deals with the Gentile world outside of Judaism. And he's showing that the Gentile world has been given over to sin. And then in chapter 2, he knows a lot of the Jews who are reading this who need to know the plan of salvation who say, well, I don't follow Jesus, but I keep the law of Moses. I thank God I'm not like those, those Gentiles over there, man, that you're talking about, Paul. I have the law of Moses, and I follow his law. Now Paul wants to show, guess what? It's not just the Gentiles that have sinned and have broken God's law, but it's also the Jews. So in Romans chapter 2, he says how he turns his target from the Gentile world to the Jews who would be judging them, saying, well, we got the law of Moses. And look what he does in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. Well, wow, what did he just do here? Because he just said that the Gentile world, everybody is lost in the Gentile world. But he's talking about those who pass judgment on the Gentile world are also in trouble. You're without excuse. Why? Well, that would be every one of us, by the way. He says, yeah, look at them, but would think that we're sinless. Not just the Jews, by the way. It would have further application. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in, what, uh, in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge pr- uh, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, not just Gentiles. Verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of, and I love this man, this is a first real hint of his mercy and his grace and his willingness to forgive those who have fallen into sin, those who live lives of sin, sinners. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of, of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. It's not just the Gentiles. It's also those who are saying, "I'm glad I'm not a Gentile sinner." In the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person, everyone, according to his deeds. Verse seven: To those who by perseverance and doing good seek the glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who selfishly uh, selfish, uh, ambitious, but to those who are selfishly ambitious, ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. On the Jew first, and also the Greek. Why the Jew first? Because that's God's revelation came to Abraham. And, and through Abraham and his descendants, the Jews, God made a promise that the gospel would go to the world, the good news through his descendants. And Christ came through the line of Abraham, through Isaac and Jacob, and then eventually Uh, the descendants of Abraham through through King David, and eventually Jesus came into the world as the God-man. Amen? Begotten of the Holy Spirit, but also uh, begotten, or not begotten, but born of humanity. Uh, Verse uh, 9, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, for the Jew first and also of the Greek. Verse 10, But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is what? There's no partial with God. Well, guess what? It so happens that none, there's none that do good. Amen? It goes on to say that in Romans. And the good, only good that you can end up doing that pleases God is after you're born again, right? And you do works to God's glory as evidence of faith. So it's really interesting when you look at these passages. And now Paul does something really crazy here. Not crazy. It's just, it's just awesome. Because he knows there's a lot of Jews and so many Jews came to Christ through reading Romans. Well, he oh, I'm the man. Thou art the man, Paul's saying. You're guilty too, man. You need to be saved by grace too. And look what he does, man, in Romans chapter three. Let's go to chapter three now. He's still showing the, the bad news before he gets to the good news. He's still saying, hey, you guys, humanity's got this huge problem. Humanity needs salvation. And then in chapter three, he does something really interesting. Paul puts seven quotations from Four parts of the Old Testament from the Pentateuch, Torah, the first five books. Quotations from Pentateuch or Torah, quotations from the book of Psalms, quotations from the wisdom literature of Solomon, and quotations from the Old Testament prophets. Ha! It's really cool. He takes seven quotes, stacks them up for the Jewish reader, so he can say, hey, guess what? The Old Testament itself shows that you couldn't keep God's law. Because a lot of Jews are like, and you go to Israel today, We're going in November, oh, by the way, October, what's that, 7th through 9th, live stream audience there in Texas, and anybody there about or wants to go visit, in October, we'll be going for uh, the 7th through the 9th of October, a couple weeks, what's that, three weeks away or so, uh, to do a conference, Uh, so just let you guys know, hey, if anybody wants to go to that conference, contact uh, James Jackson and the Belverde Fellowship, or the, yeah, baby, did I get the date wrong? What's that? Six through the eighth. It's not seventh through ninth. Okay, sixth through the eighth. Okay, uh, go uh, sixth through the eighth in October. I was given another date, but it's close enough. Uh, uh, so, just if you can make it there, that'd be awesome. We're gonna have a really, really cool discernment conference and so forth, and uh, encourage you in that. But in November, we go to Israel, and we'll be making a a, a documentary film on on Israel, not just her history. But God's plan and the prophecies that are fulfilled there, because it's a blow of mine, became a nation again in 1948, amen? May 14, 1948, and we're going to be doing a, a, a film on that. And it's going to be really cool because we're going to be seeing, uh, but we're also going to be spending a lot of time on what does the Bible say about the future. I mean, we'll be in Sodom and Gomorrah, holding up, showing charred bones, graveyards, I mean, just holding up, literally, brimstone. No volcanoes around there. It's just there. But God says, as it was then, Jesus said, it'll be like the days of Lot in the end times again. Amen? Like Sodom and Gomorrah was. Amen? And we're also going to say, hey, this is all prophetic of what's to come, and we need to get right with God. So it's a film that has to do with prophecy, not just fulfilled prophecy, but prophecy that's being fulfilled and basically a witness. Because we don't do things just for intellectual stimulation. We do things to bring people to Jesus. Amen? So please pray about that, okay? Please pray for that to be uh, done well. But when you look at Romans chapter 3, go ahead and pick it up at verse 10 where Paul stacks these, these verses that show that, guess what? The law of Moses was never meant to save you. You couldn't be saved by keeping the law of Moses because nobody could keep the law of Moses. And I mentioned going to Israel because one thing you'll see in Israel, I, witness, I love to witness to people when I go out and about, wherever I'm at, I try to be a witness. And, and when I go to Israel, I love to go and to target Hasidic Jews, you know, or or just Orthodox Jews. And they'll be at the Wailing Wall, you know, going like this. And they'll have all the garb and the long beards. And they, they look like, you know, they, they, they've just got the Bible memorized. You begin talking to them. You start to find out, wow, a lot of these guys are clueless about what the prophets say. A lot of them are really following. The, I have to ask my rabbi. You start talking to him. Well, i got to ask my rabbi. Or I really focus just on the first five books. Torah. I'm saying I go to Daniel 9 I go to Jeremiah I'm I'm expecting to have these really good debates about what the prophets say about who the Messiah is I started to find out a lot of these guys never read the prophets well guess why they don't read the prophets a lot because the prophets talk about how you guys are breaking God's law how you need a savior and how you can't keep God's law and you need a new covenant where the law is written on your heart right the new covenant law and the God the Holy Spirit will help you keep his moral law and so it's a great way to witness, but Paul's dealing with that problem <laughs> multiplied, you know? In first century, in the Greco-Roman world, especially among the Jews in Jerusalem and so forth, but the Jews dispersed as well. Let them know God's word says you can't keep his law. Because a lot of them think they're keeping the law. As Moses, I'm going to be saved by, because I'm righteous. But <laughs> Jesus said on a certain, a certain amount, unless your righteousness exceeds... Goes beyond is better than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. In other words, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was not enough to enter the kingdom of God. You had to exceed that. What's the point? Because the Bible, the, the Jews had a saying if only two people go to heaven, it'll be, one will be a scribe and one will be a Pharisee. And Jesus is turning that on its head. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the prescribes the Pharisees, you'll by no means enter heaven. In other words, guess what? You cannot get to heaven by trying to be righteous. And don't be self-righteous thinking, oh, I'm better than the next person. Remember, the Pharisee was in the temple, or he's, beat, he's sitting there and he's like, looks at this tax gatherer who's sitting there, and he goes, I thank my God, I thank God that I'm not like that tax gatherer. I fast twice a week, I give to the poor, I'm not like that guy. And then Jesus said, yeah, he was self-righteous. And Jesus said, the tax gatherer, the publican, he said, beat his chest, didn't even look up because he's ashamed of his sin. He says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And then Jesus said, which one of those two men left right with God? And it was the sinner who repented and cried out for mercy, Jesus said. Because you cannot get in heaven based on your good works. So a lot of Jews said, oh, we got the law. We're God's special people, and we're trying to keep the law. So, And God's the Bible says God's law is a schoolteacher or tutor, pedagoge in the Greek, to show us that we need grace, that we're guilty of sin, and that we need forgiveness. It's a pedagoge that leads us to who? To Jesus, amen? And just as you, you, you don't just, we're not just given the New Testament. We're given the Old Testament to prepare us for the New Testament. We're giving Moses to prepare us for Jesus. I need, a, I need a Savior, amen? That's why John came to prepare the way, John the Baptist, for Jesus, amen? He was condemning those guys. Repent, who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, you vipers. Sing this to religious leaders. So if we think you're going to be saved by being good enough or some kind of self-improvement program, that'll never save us. We can't save ourselves. That's the point of the gospel. The first point of the gospel So look at what Paul does when he stacks up all these quotes from the Old Testament. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. What then? Are we better than they, meaning us Jews, better than the Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both what? Jews and Greeks are all under sin. He did that in Romans 1 and 2. We're all under sin. As is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Now, if you have your text and you're reading it and everything that you see capitalized Many translations will put the quotes from the Old Testament, the the Capilites. That's all from the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament saying, hey, look, our Old Testament says that we're condemned because we can't keep God's law. There's none righteous, none. Not one Pharisee, not one scribe, not one, you know. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. Their po- the poison of ass is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And it's kind of interesting. He gets, he's got their hands and their feet, their throats, their lips, their tongues, right? Their eyes. He's saying, look, you're not only guilty of sin, but your whole being is sick from head to toe. You need to be saved. You need the great physician. You need, you need to be fixed by God. Only God can save you. Which, by the way, that was the point of the whole Sparky book. You know? Sparky is a broken mirror meant to reflect his king. And the serpent comes in and deceives him. He jumps off the wall. Like I said, people are thinking, oh, that's such a great original story. It's like, that's not original. I took it right from the Bible. You know? I just took it right from the Bible, and I just use human imagery because I believe God gave us a mirror for more than one reason, but one was to illustrate that we're created to reflect him. And Sparky goes all over and he's so sad he's got his bag of glass and he can't get fixed. Until his creator reveals himself to him when he's in this black forest and he's crying. He's looked under every rock and every tree, can't be set free. you know. And then he reveals himself to him. And then Sparky, poor Sparky clings to his robe and, and then the king begins to fix him. And as he fixes him, He's putting the glass together and he's cutting his hands because it's a it's great cost to fix this, this mirror which is a picture of, of course, what Jesus did for us. It actually dying for us. Amen. And then he brings it back into his palace home. So I actually go with creation. He's created. You know, the, 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 the deception, the fall. He falls. You know, he's lost. God reveals himself to him. God's kindness, prevenient grace, you know. And he forgives him, forgiveness, redemption. He fixes him, sanctification. He puts him back in, in his heavenly palace where they dance and sing, glorification. So, in this little tiny book, you know, kids' book, you have major Christian doctrines strewn throughout, you know? Uh, well, are you trying to get non believers to get saved and try to get. The, yeah, absolutely. That's what that, a lot of that's about. But I'm also trying to teach Christian parents the basics of the gospel that a lot of Christians don't aren't aware of. And this is a short little booklet, a short little book. So, but anyway, it's interesting because here it reveals, Paul does in the book of Romans, that we're sick uh, from head to toe. And it's very important that we get that. Now go to chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. and He emphasizes how we're all guilty. Just right up, we left off in verse 18, then in verse 19 we read this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are what? Under the law. So that every mouth may be what? Every mouth may be shut or closed. And all the world may be what? May become accountable to God. Verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be what? So the law is not going to justify you. By the works of the law, no one's being made justified means to be not condemned. It's It's a forensic legal term in the first century, used in Roman courts, meant to be declared righteous, uh, not condemned. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. In his sight, for through the law comes the what? Knowledge of sin. And one of the greatest illustrations of my childhood, which I'm going to share in just 30 seconds because I've shared it before in this fellowship, but it's such a powerful illustration for me when I became a Christian. I'm like, ooh, that's interesting. As I used to go across a lawn at the corner of a house, I'm skipping a lot of stuff in this story, because it was, it was, you know, there was a path right through, diagonally through that yard. And you could cut the corner. And the street that you were going alongside parallel from the street you were on, on a big downhill, was first street and was very busy. You know, First Street and Simi Valley. So it's cool because you didn't have to take that corner. You couldn't take that corner too fast. So you'd go off and get hit. So you could take that diagonal pretty quick. So i take that diagonal across that road or the road across their lawn because it was dirt. Well, that oh, that's pretty cool neighbors, man. They allow me to do this. No, they don't. Then I saw a sign up there that said, stay off our lawn. And they had like nail strips sticking out of the ground and everything. Then I realized every time I went across that, I need to make sure there's no nails. But I still went across it at times. And I was a lawbreaker as a kid, punk, lost kid. Okay, I wish that was the worst of my sins. Not that it wasn't bad, but you know what I'm saying. And, and, but it wasn't until I became aware that it was wrong that I felt guilty. And the law makes us aware, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not, you know, commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, right? Uh, it, hatred, Jesus says if you have anger in your heart against somebody, your brother, it's just like Hatred. Wow. So if you're angry without a cause and you have anger toward your brother, it's like hatred. If you lust for a woman, he said, that's adultery. Wow. And so he shows us that you can't just say, well, I've been perfect. Nobody has. I, lo- I love the fact that the scripture is really clear that it makes it really clear. You know, everybody, we like to give people the good person test when you're witnessing. Hey, can I give you a little good person test? See If you're a good person, then you rattle off some of these commandments and say, hey, do you ever take something that belonged to you, even something small? You ever tell a lie, even a little one? Before you know it, everyone's guilty. If someone says, I've never lied, I've never sinned, then I say, well, the Bible says all of sin, and come short of God's glory. And the Bible says if you say that you're without sin, you're a liar. The truth's not in you. So I'd say, it, but you're kind of lying right now. But maybe you just don't know God's law. In your conscience they do, but they suppress that, remember. So you have to resurrect their conscience through the preaching of the law because before you can get them to need realize they need Jesus, you have to give them Moses, right? So what Paul says here very clearly is that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But he says that God's law makes every mouth what? What happens to it? Shut. I love that because he emphasizes the sinfulness of the mouth. It just occurred to me right now, this very moment, that those verses 10 through 17, he's emphasizing the sinfulness of the mouth, the lips and everything, which I already knew that. But I just realized, ooh, he's contrasting it. That mouth that's so sinful and arrogant shuts before God's law. Guilty. No excuse. Amen. I just thought the contrast, that's the first time I saw the contrast. That's interesting. Charles uh, Spurgeon said the law cuts into the core of the evil. It reveals the seat of the malady and informs us that the leprosy lies deep within. John Wesley said, It remains only to show the uses of the law, and the first use of it, without question, is to convince is to convince the world of sin. "'By this the sinner is discovered to himself. "'All his fig leaves are torn away, "'and he sees that he is a wretched, poor, miserable, "'blind and naked. "'The law flashes conviction on every side. "'He feels himself a mere sinner. "'He has nothing to pay. "'His mouth is stopped. "'His mouth is stopped, and he stands guilty before God.' To slay the sinner, then, is the first use of the law, to destroy the life and strength wherein he trusts and convince him that he is dead while he lives, not only under the sentence of death, but actually dead to God, void of all spiritual life, dead in trespasses and sins. That's such a good quote. I saw recently a few different things from John Wesley about using the law. D.L. Moody said, the great evangelist of the last century, or actually a little further back, he says, ask Paul why the law was given. Here is his answer, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That's, we just read that in Romans 3.19. The law stops every man's mouth. I could always tell a man who is near the kingdom of God. His mouth is stopped. This then is why God gives, us, gives the law to show us ourselves in our true colors. That's really good too. So law stops people in their tracks from trusting in their own righteousness and proclaiming, well, I'm a good guy. I mean, how many people, this happens to me all the time when I witness people, well, I'm a good person. Well, yeah, I go to church once in a while. Why well, are you born again? Have you accepted Jesus Christ? You died on the cross as your Lord and Savior. Have you been forgiven? You know, and it's a great way to just bring the gospel to them is let them know that we are lawbreakers and uh now, what's interesting about this is Paul uses the imagery, a stark, stark imagery of a courtroom here when he's dealing with breaking God's law. And I think it's really, really fascinating saying that no one is innocent and, and so forth, that we need to be justified. In fact, what's interesting is the New Testament uses an interesting Greek word, anomia, and the Greek word anomia, you can pronounce anomia, anomia, I think there's an omicron there, which would be a ah sound instead of an omega, which would be the o oh sound. But anomia, A-N-O-M-I-A, would be the English transliteration. And it's a compound of two, basically, Greek words. You have namas. Namas is a Greek word for law. La, namas, N-O-M-O-S. And uh, the A, which is the alpha in the Greek, first letter of the Greek alphabet, it's alpha anamas or alpha namas. The A, like atheist or agnostic, that nullifies, it negates the next word, right? So when you see anomia, okay, A with the alpha with the namas, you basically have one who is against the law, a criminal, a lawbreaker, and that's what we are called. In fact, the word is used in First John 3, 4, where it says very clearly that uh, sin is transgression of the law, King James Version. Or trans- sin is the breaking of God's law, the Christian, uh, I think that's the, the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible. Uh, so it's interesting. Now it's interesting, he also says, go back now to Romans chapter 3. We looked at verses 20, uh, or, or 19 and 20. Now look at verse twenty, not 21. For apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law, And the prophets. So God's law, through his law, the righteousness of God is manifested. How does the law manifest God's righteousness? Because God's moral law is a reflection of who he is. Right? Thou shalt not commit murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. These are manifestations of his holy nature. His law shows his righteousness. But look what it says, something interesting. But now, apart from the law of the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who what? Believe. For there is no distinction. Wow, what's going on here? Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall what? Short of the glory of God. Now it's interesting because the Greek word for sin there is harmatia. There's different Greek words for sin, but harmatia is a common one. And the word harmatia means to fall short of a target. It's used of someone shooting at its prey or a target, an arrow, and it falls short of the target. And that's what sin, we, what do we fall short of according to verse 23? All of sin and fall short of what? The glory of God. Glory of God. Now I think that's really interesting because to fall short there, the Greek word is a hystereto, and historetto is used of, you know, in, in various contexts, it's, it's, it means, quote, to lack, to be deficient in, in wanting, to fall behind, and it suggests being, uh, you know, weighed in the balances and found wanting. We fall short of God's glory. When the Bible speaks of God's glory, it speaks of his brightness, his, his, his holiness, the radiance of his holiness. Well, we're created in his glory, and we're supposed to reflect his glory, Amen. And we reflect his glory through righteousness, walking in love. Amen? Being who we're called to be. But it's like we're, we're like 100 watt, uh, you know, light bulbs. But we only shine at 1% or 2%. Okay? We're supposed to radically shine for him. That's back to the sparky. Sparky's lost his shine because he broke and he fell. And he needed to be forgiven and fixed. Well, guess what? We've all been broken. We all don't shine the way we're supposed to shine. And one day we will shine through God's glory, through forgiveness of sins, and through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, it's interesting. Uh, when you look at the text, it's really fascinating because look at verse 21 because something very, very interesting shows up. Because guess what you and I need? We have a lawyer who stands against us, a, defense, a prosecuting attorney. Who's our prosecuting attorney? Satan. Satan. That's right. He hates us. He tries to deceive us. He tries to get us in trouble. Satan is not cool. I feel so bad for Satanists. Not only are they going to hell, which breaks my heart, but they're serving the one who's the greatest narc in the, on the planet, in the universe, who tries to get them in trouble. And I said, look at him, God. So God is like, Satan is narking to God on his followers. Look at this guy. <laughs> He's like, Yeah. But he's the prosecuting attorney. He's called, the name devil, is, Satan means from the Greek, means opposer. The word devil is from the Greek diabolos, which means slander. He slanders us. In fact, it says that he, in Revelation chapter 12, around verse 10, he accuses us day and night before God. He goes to and fro on the earth, but he takes trips back and forth, and he accuses us day and night. So man, we are in big trouble, because guess what, are we guilty? Yes. yes. Is God just God? Yes. What happens in a courtroom? When you have criminals, you have some that are, you know, acquitted, and you have some that are found guilty, right? Well, guess what? In God's divine courtroom, we're all guilty. Every one of us. We need a really good defense attorney, don't we? We need a really, really, really good defense attorney. We need a good strategy. He's got to have the best strategy. Can he bribe the jury? No. God's righteous, Right? Can he log, uh, lie like a dog to get us out of it? No, no that ain't going to work. God's righteous. Good to see you guys. <laughs> Good to see some people I haven't seen for a while. Praise the Lord. Love you guys. Praise God. Uh, God's amazing. We need the best attorney, attorney we can get. Who could say, just leave it to me? His son. Amen. Because the Bible says, and look at verse, look at verse 23 now. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24. Being justified as a gift... What? We are justified as a gift by his grace through the what? The redemption which comes, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, who displayed publicly, has displayed what? Publicly as a propitiation, a payment in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Wait, how could he get us out of it? We're sinful. We have no way out. We're guilty. Satan's got the goods on us. How can we get out? This was demonstrated by his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Verse 26, for, why? For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just. Look at this. So that he would be what? Just, just and what? And the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. How could we get out of it being, you know, dirty and guilty and sinful and God do it justly and just be the justifier. Be just and righteous and still justifies. Makes no sense at all. What makes perfect sense when you realize that he's a propitiation, the helasmos, the, the propitiation, the payment for our sins. And this makes all the... Pres- because guess what? If it's just you, God, and the law, you're in trouble. Amen? But look at something very... There's so much in the text. If I was going through Romans, we would be going this, covering this kind of ground. Because look at verse 21. These are verses that, you, little phrases you don't want to miss. But now what? What are the first five words there, first six words? But at what? Apart from the law. Praise God. We're not being judged based on the law system, amen? Otherwise we're doomed. But apart from the law. God has something else going on. What does Jesus compare sin to 10,000 what? 10,000 talents. Remember that guy? That's like 10,000 lifetimes of work it would take to make 10,000 talents. You could never do it in even a lifetime or ever. And then you'd still have other sin to pay off that you're accruing while you're trying to pay off that, 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 that verdict. You'd be, you were just doomed. But God in his great goodness, amen, prepares his son as a propitiation, sends the son of the world. In First John chapter 4, verses 10 through like 13, 14, verses 8 through like 10, 11, it says God is love. It says, and he gave his son as a propitiation for us. And then when you look at 1 John two, 2 1 John 2:1 by the way, says, I write these things that you don't sin. He wants to be sinless. No one could be absolutely sinless yet, but we aim for it as Christians. I write these things that you don't sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Advocate, and it says Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a defense lawyer. He's the best defense lawyer ever. His name is Jesus Christ. Satan steps up and says, You know what? Of every one of you, they're guilty, man. No doubt about it. You've got it better than video, man. It's all written down and seen. Guilty. But Jesus steps forth, and the word advocate means defense lawyer. It was used of defense lawyers in those days. And he steps up and he could declare you not guilty. How? Because the sins that you're guilty of, what did he do? He paid for them on the cross. He hung on the cross to pay for all of your sins. And what was one of the sayings he yelled? Starts with a T. I think you're going to get this question right. On the cross. What did he yell out? You can do better than that. What did he yell out? To die, which is a Greek accounting term, which means paid in full. He paid for all of our sins. Amen? So he's just because he's perfectly righteous. And because he's perfectly righteous, he could die in our place and pay our fine. Amen? And he pays our fine on the cross. yells out, to tell us that I paid in full. Where if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as a propitiation. And by the way, First John, it doesn't only really say, I write these things that you don't sin, but, uh, and if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, a defense lawyer. He goes on to say, who's a propitiation not only for our sins, the sins of the elect, but for the sins of the Ooh, you got that one down too. But for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Praise God. That means each, he died for each and every one of us, amen? And he's demonstrated this to, in the cosmic divine courtroom. That this is the big picture of what's going on in the universe, that we could be redeemed and saved. That's good news, amen? And when I was in a Filipino prison, not for doing bad things, I might get that right. <laughs> we, out, we went to the Philippines more than once and sharing the gospel out there, and it was just a beautiful time. And, but all kinds of people were getting arrested left and right because of the president of the Philippines at the time. What was his name, Jimbo? Tutorte. Tutorte, Tutorte was really, really, really bad. And everybody was tripping out because he's arresting people everywhere. In fact, if you suspected somebody as a, a drug dealer, you could rat them and they would just be taken in, whether they were one or, or not, and they would maybe get tried three or four years later. You could just, you'd have the enemy, you'd say, oh, he's a drug dealer. They'd put dead bodies out. People would kill drug dealers. You could kill drug dealers and just drag them out the streets. Oh, he's a drug dealer. Wasn't. But there's all kinds of people in this prison dressing, I think, these reddish suits. was like 70 of them or so. I can't remember exactly. A bunch of these guys I'm addressing, and a lot of them wouldn't get the court date for a long time. But I let them know, guess what? There's another Court date they're going to face. That's even more serious than what you're facing here. And there's they already a lot of them shaking in their boots because a lot of these guys are going to be executed and letting them know that the courtroom in heaven, I just basically explained why I just explained to you guys that you have a defense lawyer, man, who gave himself for you. are going to stand before God, at the great white throne judgment. And if your name's not found in the book of life, you're going to be thrown in the lake of fire, the Bible says. But Jesus died for your sins. He paid for them as a propitiation of payment, so you can be forgiven. So enemy, the enemy, Satan, can accuse you all he wants before God, but Jesus can just show forth his hands and says, pay in full. He paid for all your sins. And you won't have to even go to the great way through judgment if you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you turn from a life of rebellion against God and ask the Lord to have mercy on you and forgive you of your sins, amen, just said repent and turn to Jesus. I made it very clear. It was such a powerful gospel presentation because it was a perfect illustration for where they were at. And when I encouraged them, I said, and I didn't even say heads bowed, you know, eyes closed. I said, if you want to turn to Jesus Christ, and be saved right now. So when you stand before God, you'll be pretty, you're, and right now you can be pronounced forgiven. Please stand up, man. Everybody, just all of them shot up at like two or three guys. And it was two or three guys that were kind of murmuring in the back while I was talking. And claimed to turn to Christ that day, and we prayed for them. Well, guess what? They could be in horrific, dire straits. My heart was so blessed to know a lot of these guys, man, have just been forgiven. God sees their hearts. And now no matter what they go through, they could have a blessed life. Because they had some some horrific times ahead. Well, guess what? Same applies to you. If you get forgiven today and you don't know Jesus, and you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you receive the forgiveness of sins, it doesn't matter what trials you go in through this world, amen? Because you're headed for heaven, amen? And the Bible says the present trials that we go through aren't even worthy of being compared to the blessings that we're going to receive with the Lord when we get there. Amen? So it's so awesome being saved, knowing that he works everything for the good, knowing that I get to be with my Lord forever, knowing that I'm forgiven all of my sins. Amen? And that doesn't only change me, or doesn't only forgive me, but guess what? That problem where I've got this fallen nature, then he fixes me. Amen? He gives me a new nature. Jesus comes to live in my heart. He gives me a desire to follow the Lord, a desire to do what's right, a desire to be a blessing to people. It's so awesome to be born again. The Bible says he'll take away your heart of stone, that hard, cold heart, and give you a heart of flesh like you're created to have. The Bible says if anyone be in Jesus, he's a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. All things have become new. And the Bible says when one sinner comes to repentance, the angels of heaven rejoice. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I encourage you right now to embrace him as your Lord and Savior right now. And if you just do what that publican did, what that tax gatherer did, and you just say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And you really mean it from the heart. You ask for God's forgiveness through what Christ did on the cross. and You start putting your trust in Jesus and following him. Guess what? You'll be saved today. Amen? You'll be saved by God's grace. The Bible says it's a free gift. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Wages are what you earn. Because of your sin, you deserve death. But it doesn't stop there. It says the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God, it's a free gift, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. I encourage you to receive Jesus Christ right now. And the Bible says if just one person received Jesus Christ, repent, right? In Luke 15, it says the angels, listen to this, the angels in heaven rejoice. They have a party. Amen. So I encourage you to do that now and live a new life for Christ and be thankful for eternity for your defense lawyer. Amen. And be thankful for the judge, because the judge loves you, and that defense lawyer is his son, and he kind of hatched the plan, okay, to get you out of it. What a good God. Amen. Let's stand, please, and let's give the Lord thanks. Amen. For saving us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. Give him thanks. He deserves praise. We love you, Lord God, and we thank you for eternal life. Hallelujah. We praise you. Hallelujah, Lord God. Praise the Lord, you guys. We pass out the cup and the bread